thought we were going to have an unplanned drum solo there. I was rooting for him. So glad to see you all today. Hey, oh, we're closing down this series because next weekend is Easter weekend. So excited for Easter weekend. And uh, Easter is a celebration, and it's not just a celebration uh, for Christians or for people who uh, just uh, go to church every week or grew up in the church. Uh, I can think of nothing sadder than just a bunch of believers huddled together on Easter weekend uh, singing their songs to each other. That's what the disciples did on Saturday. Jesus died on a Friday. On Saturday, the disciples huddled together, but the, th- the stone was thrown away on Sunday, and ever since then, it's been a public event. So we're doing six Easter services, our, our five regular ones, but then on, uh, we're adding one Friday night, so if you're uh, headed out of town or uh, maybe you want to uh, maybe you're able to give up your Sunday morning seat and go to one of those earlier ones because that's Sunday mornings when we'll have the most guests and things like that. But hey, come anytime. We're so excited about it. Uh, we're excited to uh, introduce people to the good news and to God and uh, help them to know God. Uh, the Bible says in Luke 15 that there is a great celebration in heaven every time someone comes to know God. Uh, so we invite you back next weekend for that. And a great way to invite other people is just to ask them, do you have a church for Easter? Do you have a church for Easter? And if they say no, say, well, would you come, come with me to mine and, uh, and bring people uh, to your church, bring people to Jesus Christ. That's uh, our purpose as a church. If you're praying for someone uh, to come to know God this Easter, I'd love to pray for them as well on your communication card on the prayer requests. If you would just put their name, just put Easter and then their name could be a friend or family member. I want to pray with you for them uh, that they have an encounter with God this Easter. Whether it's at this church or another one or even another part of the world, I want to pray for who you're praying for and our staff, our prayer team do as well. Also, another note about Easter's Thursday night is when we'll do our rehearsals with the worship team and choir and everybody. And after those rehearsals, we all huddle together as a team and pray for the weekend. We pray for churches in our community. We pray for our lost friends and family. And uh, Chris and I just thought we should open that up to the whole church. Uh, so if you would like to come and pray with us, uh, just do a prayer huddle. Uh, it'll be around 9 o'clock once they finish with rehearsal uh, in here on Thursday night. So it'll be about 20, 25 minute thing, uh, but we'd love to see you there for that and, and we can pray together for Easter weekend. So that's Easter. Uh, sound good, everybody? Say yes. yes. I need you excited with me today. I'm so excited for today's message. I need you alive and excited about it with me. I went through my storage uh, room well, actually, in case my wife's here, I did not go through it. I went in it. And uh, uh, anybody else have the room, that room in their house? Like people come to your house, they're like, wow, it's so clean and organized. Meanwhile, there's this back bedroom that's just crammed full. Come on, I don't want to be alone. Anybody? All right. See, Lauren, not just me. And uh, I went in there and uh, I noticed some themes. The first theme I noticed was that uh, none of it's Lauren's. It's all my junk. It's all mine. And, uh, and so, <laughs> sorry about that. But uh, going through there, it was uh, pretty amazing. Noticed a couple themes. First theme was that a lot of music stuff. Uh, records. Got a lot of records. 
Uh, but what's funny about that is I've never owned a record player. Um, but I have all these vinyls, and I don't know why. But uh, this is my favorite record. It's the Andy Williams Christmas album, Mr. Branson, The Crooning King. Love me some Andy Williams. I listen to this album every Christmas. I've never listened to this record, though. I just stream it online. And uh, love that. Then it kind of got a next level, and that is a tape. And uh, I've got a lot of these. And this is a Stephen Curtis Chapman tape, my favorite artist. Uh, he was even my favorite artist as a kid. In fifth grade, I wrote a paper on Stephen Curtis Chapman. Everyone else took the assignment to mean that they were just supposed to write on Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. They did that. I wrote on Stephen Curtis Chapman. And uh, my favorite song, The Great Adventure. Anybody know something about The Great Adventure? Nobody? Great Adventure? Don't worry, I'll introduce you. And uh, love that. Then the next, uh, next level is a Sony Discman. Anybody have one of these? This is great. And this one is car ready, meaning it has steady sound and electric shock protection. And, uh, and it has a, a three-second memory, my brother informed me last night. Actually, when I was looking at this last night, I remember this is actually my brother's. Uh, but he was telling me that uh, it is three-second memory. So it, if it skips, if you just stop and wait three seconds, it'll just start right back where it was, and you could put some Velcro on here and put it on the dashboard of your car and drive along and then attach it to your tape, and, and you could do that, and it's great, and so you could play The Great Adventure on here. The other thing you could do with it is you could listen to The Great Adventure with this, uh, put it in here, and then you could mow the lawn <laughs> while listening to The Great Adventure, or you could go on a run, but you can't run very hard or fast. You kind of got to heel, toe, heel, toe. <laughs> Otherwise, it'll just skip the whole time. And so uh, I won't wear that the whole sermon, um, but got this stuff here. And then uh, got another thing. First, maybe second generation iPod. And here you would upload the music to your computer, then download the music to the iPod. 20 gigabytes worth, thousands of songs, no stop button. Absolutely amazing. No skipping. So great. But now, I've got this here, this phone, and it can play The Great Adventure. Actually, it can play any song ever recorded, just with the click of a button. So you can listen to The Great Adventure original version. And then you can just, don't swap out CDs, don't swap out tapes, don't upload some of your computer. Next thing, Great Adventure live. Great Adventure, the acoustic recreated version. Or you could go Great Adventure, the 25th anniversary edition that came out a couple months ago. I got all these. And I could keep going and I could keep going. But uh, this has outdated all of this. See, what used to, I mean, people waited in line for this. People spent a lot of money for this. 1994, this was $207, my brother informed me. But he didn't want it back. In fact, I left all this stuff up, stuff up here overnight. I didn't worry about anyone stealing it. And I noticed another theme as I went through, or went into the storage room. And that is... These books, 
These are Bibles. And what I noticed in researching for this sermon this weekend is that many see these and this the same way. That these are good, these were good, but they have their place in American history, good principles to build your life on, but it's, come on, a little outdated. That are, are we really up to date? Are we really doing what we need to be doing here? Isn't there a better way? Isn't there another way? And some would say that these belong in a museum. These belong in the past. Let's just pull the good principles and move on. And, and, and let's let these live in a storage tote in a basement bedroom with all these other things that honestly are just waiting for me to one day have the gumption to throw away. And what I want to do is do my best today to show you the unmistakable power of this book. Because it is unmistakable. The result of today is I want you to leave here today loving the Bible more than you ever have. To, to love something more, you've got to understand it a, a little bit better. And so that's the first thing I want to help you do today, is just understand this book a little bit better. Uh, the, the Bible, it actually means book. It comes from the Greek word biblos. It just means book. But it's a book like no other. It's the most read, the most sold, the most translated, the most powerful book in history. It is absolutely amazing this book it's actually a lot of books put into one uh, you can write this down if you want just some facts about the bible it's 66 books put together and it was written over almost uh, 1600 years in three languages on three continents in over a dozen countries by the way and it had 40 different writers 40 different contributing writers. But what makes it stand apart is it had one author. It has one author and one message. Man held the pen, but God wrote it. And this is why Christians believe this verse right here out of the Bible. And that is that all scripture is inspired. Some translations say God breathed. That it's not just ink on a page, it's breath on a page. That God spoke it, God inspired it, it's inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So it's these 66 books with two major divisions, it's got the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, now, these books that make up the Bible, they're not in chronological order. And uh, the, the Bible's not in chronological order. It's kind of confusing for the person who just sits down uh, to read it. Uh, they're actually uh, cataloged and categorized by what type of book they are. Uh, so uh, the Old Testament, you can write that in, uh, in that blank. But it starts with the law. And that's uh, five books. And this is when the law was given. It was written by Moses. It has the creation, the flood, Abraham, Moses, the Ten Commandments, uh, has a historical section uh, of 12 books. Uh, this has Israel's history after, the, um, after Moses. And uh, the Battle of Jericho is probably Joshua and the Battle of Jericho probably 
uh, the most well-known, famous of those early events. And then it goes all the way to the end of the Old Testament timeline uh, where Nehemiah rebuilds the, the wall around Jerusalem and Israel rebuilds the temple. And, uh, but then, uh, then you kind of go back into this section that's poetical that if it was in chronological order, you'd see it in the historical section, but then a poetical section, then a prophetical uh, section. And then there's five Five major prophets and then 12 minor prophets. And that's just meaning that not that some are more important than the others, but some are big and some are small. And the Old Testament was put together by the Jews long before Jesus' time. And they had very strict criteria. And when it comes to the Old Testament, we've just got the endorsement of all endorsements that they got it right. Because Jesus affirmed every section of the Old Testament. So... These different sections, Jesus quoted and affirmed each, each part of these. And he affirmed uh, the creation story and Noah and the flood, uh, Abraham, Moses, the law, the historical accuracy, uh, Psalms, Job, Solomon, the prophets. Uh, so that's how the Old Testament is organized. Then there's about 400 years where nothing was written. Now, if you have a Catholic background or come from some other background, uh, you would see uh, books in that time span called the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha are writings that happen between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And they were not considered scripture. Uh, If they were passed around with scripture, they were added on as an appendix. Uh, But during the 1500s, during the Protestant Reformation, the Catholics then decided to include the Apocrypha in the scriptures. Uh, the problem is no uh, apocrypha or apocryphal book was written by a prophet. Uh, none of these books were included in the Hebrew scriptures. No apocryphal book is cited uh, by an authoritative Bible writer later. There's no fulfilled prophecy in an apocryphal book. And finally, Jesus, again, who quoted from every section of the Old Testament, never once quoted from the apocrypha, neither did any of the disciples or or Bible writers in the New Testament. But then you get to the New Testament and we see four, four books, the Gospels, four different accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And you get the book of Acts, which is the historical record of the early church after Jesus ascended into heaven. Churches were planted. And then letters were written to those churches called the Epistles. And they give us instruction on how to be the church and how to live and spread the gospel while we wait for Jesus' return and then the book of Revelation. And, and I just hope that helps you understand the Bible uh, and how it's organized. And I just do all that right out of the gate, just right out of the gate to show you uh, how it's put together and even that, that Jesus uh, recognized and affirmed and believed uh, in the Old Testament um, but really, a lot of the question, and maybe as you watch the History Channel or hear from other people who stand against the Bible, what really comes under the question is the New Testament. And that's what I want to spend uh, some time on today. And the question is, how were the books chosen? Because the popular belief or the word on the street is that uh, men, powerful men, just got into a room And they took man-made written documents and then they just voted on what would be in here based on what they liked and and don't like. And they voted some things out and they voted some things in. And that some stuff got added to it, some stuff got taken away by the powers that be. And uh, that's not what happened. 
Uh, there's actually two councils, one in Hippo and another in Carthage, uh, where all the bishops from Asia and Africa and Europe uh, formally set down the 27 books of the New Testament. And this happened in 390 AD. 390 AD. And maybe you say, 390, why did it take them so long? If the Bible was written in the first century, why did it take them so long to finally set down and formalize these books? Well, it's because, first of all, there just wasn't the organization. I mean, churches were mostly underground. In most places, it was illegal to be a Christian. And so, the, but the other thing is that it really wasn't even an issue. That they were circulating these books and there wasn't much debate about it. But when they sat down to, to formalize or canonize these 27 books of the New Testament, again, we have a picture that they had many to choose from and they just decided some didn't decide others. No, there were criteria for what had to be included. And I'll give you three of the criteria. Uh, number one, it had to be written by an apostle or someone affirmed by an apostle. And that's huge because Jesus chose the apostles and the church understood that those disciples, those apostles, were to be the ones to give us the faith. Criteria number two, it had to be accepted by the early church. So the early church, those Christ followers, they were able to look at these letters and say, yes, we saw that. Yes, we saw Jesus do that. And had to be accepted by those early followers of the faith. And then number three, it had to be in agreement with the rest of the books. So you couldn't have one book say something different than all the rest of the books. And God led this process. It, he wasn't going to go to all the trouble to inspire Scripture just to see it lost. But I think the big question that we have or that I have when I come to Scripture isn't so much how it's organized or, or the facts about the Bible of what goes where and, and how is it put together. It's that can I trust it? Is it, is it outdated? Or, or is it relevant to my life today? Can I build my life on it today? Can I trust it? Like, if it says do this, should I really do this? If it says stay away from this, should I really stay away from that? Is it trying to keep something from me in life? Or is it trying to do something great in my life? Is it relevant or is it as outdated as some of the other things in my storage room? And, and I found that the best way to do this is I just want to give you today the seven reasons why I believe in the Bible. That when I struggle with this, what I come back to of these, this is why I believe in the Bible. This is why I believe it's the Word of God. It's why I believe it's true. And so let's just march through these. The first one, uh, first reason I believe in the Bible is that it is historically accurate. Now, many will say that it's all man-made, it's all made up by man, but history proves the Bible. It's not just a, a book of great principles, it's historically accurate. Psalm 33, 4 says, the word of the Lord is, is right, yes, but it's not only right. It's not only just a good principle to live by, it's true, it's real, it, it's, it's, it's fact, it's true. Now, if you want to know if anything is true or historically accurate, it's got to pass three tests. And the first test is eyewitness accounts. We, talk, we just mentioned that, but these are not hearsay stories that someone heard and wrote down. No, almost all of Scripture is written by people who were actually there or who interviewed people who were actually there. The Gospels were written by people who lived and walked with Jesus. 
except the case, in case of Luke, he went to investigate their claims and interview the people who lived and walked with Jesus. And they, they saw and heard these things for themselves, the gospel writers. That's why the, the gospels align the way they do. They say the same thing. Now, they do not say word for word the same thing. The gospels don't say word for word the same thing. If they did, we would know they were not true. Because you've seen this on your favorite crime TV drama. If you were to take four people in and interview them, if you were to, if you were to take four people into the box one, on, one by one and ask them questions and they were to answer word for word the same thing, what would you know? You would know they got together before and corroborated their stories. When Matthew, Mark, Luke, John set out to write the Gospels, they didn't get together and say, what are you going to put after Jesus feeds the 5,000? No, they just told their side of the story. That's how you know a witness is accurate, is you're going to hear those different witnesses, and they're going to they're say basically the same thing, but from a different vantage point, a different perspective. And that's what we see in the Gospels. We see them aligning, saying the same thing. The second thing is that it has to be recorded and copied with extreme care. And the Bible has been copied and cared for better than any other thing ever written. Uh, this is probably why God entrusted some of the most meticulous people on the planet, the Jewish nation, to do this job. Because Jewish scribes had a, a standard that no one else has ever had to record history. They did not even copy word for word. They did it letter to letter. So when they had to copy a, a manuscript, they would copy the manuscript letter for letter. And in the case of the Pentateuch, the first five books, they would, they would look at those books and they would know what the middle letter is of those books. And then they would count the letters going each direction. And if they got in each direction and the numbers were different, then they would throw the whole thing away and say there's a mistake somewhere. It was recorded and copied with extreme care. Now, all the books that were written during the Bible times were written on parchments called papyrus. So when Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, there was an original letter penned by Paul, or, or he dictated it to someone who wrote it down on a piece of papyrus, and God-breathed, inspired by God, and it would end up on this papyrus about two inches thick, and then it would be bound with a cord, and a messenger would take that to the church at Ephesus. Now, we don't have, there's no museum in the world that has that original papyri, that original piece of papyrus. It, it would disintegrate over these thousands of years, and it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't hold up. So what we have are manuscripts or ancient copies that when the church got that letter, they would copy it and people would copy it so they could pass around and teach from it in their churches and learn about the faith. And so what we have are ancient manuscripts and copies. And let me just show you how these copies uh, line up to the rest of pieces of other ancient pieces of literature. Homer's The Iliad was written in 800 B.C., the earliest copy or manuscript we have is from 100 A.D., and we have 643 manuscripts. The Gaelic Wars, written by uh, Julius Caesar, the earliest copy we have is from 980 A.D., and we have 10 ancient manuscripts. 
And Josephus was a historian writing during the time of Christ. He wrote the Antiquities of the Jews in 95 AD. And we stake historical claims on his works. While the earliest copies we have are from 1050 AD with less than 30 ancient copies or manuscripts. Let's add in the New Testament, see where we get the New Testament was written between 50 and 95 AD. And a fragment of a New Testament manuscript exists back to 125 AD. It's called John Ryland's Papyri, P52. It's actually what my parents named me uh, for. And it goes, and it's a 50-year span between the time of writing and the earliest fragment of a manuscript. So people would have been alive between the span when it was written to when the manuscript would have been passed around. And just in Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, we have 5,000 ancient manuscripts. And if you want to add on to the Latin manuscripts of that, there's uh, thousands more. So when you look at this, what, what conclusions do you make? What do you conclude? Do you conclude that the writings of Julius Caesar and uh, the, the Iliad and the historical person and works of Josephus should be thrown out as irreliable? No. What you conclude is that God wanted to ensure that his inspired words would have an overwhelming amount of manuscript evidence. So that when you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, went to the scriptures, you would know that you're not in the minority lane when it comes to the veracity of the scriptures. You are in the majority lane in your faith and basing your life on the word of God. It has been recorded and copied with extreme care. The third historical test that something has to pass is archaeological confirmation. Now, I'll tell you that there are some things in Scripture of a historical nature that have not been verified archaeologically. Uh, But there are more and more discoveries made that don't disprove the veracity of Scripture, but bear out the veracity of Scripture. And and I've studied this for several years now. It seems like about every year I uh, end up studying uh, some type of archaeological confirmation of the Bible, whether through seminary or in small group or through prepping for a sermon, and every year I go to do that, there's been another archaeological discovery that bears out the veracity of Scripture. It's absolutely amazing. So there are some things that have not been uh, proven archaeologically, and some people may base their opposition to the Bible on that. Just wait them out. Because more and more, we're getting more discoveries that conclude that this is historically accurate. I'll give you, for instance, uh, a major one that happened not too long ago, that the Old Testament talks about a Hittite empire. And it was the only empire in the Bible that was never confirmed by an outside source. But in the early 1900s, they dug around in Turkey and found the Hittite capital and all of their records. Absolutely amazing. I don't have time to go through all the archaeological uh, discoveries, but like I said, every time I study this, there have been more and more things that bear out the veracity, the historical claims of the Bible. It's historically accurate. Let's move on to the next one, and that is that it is scientifically accurate. Now, the Bible is not a science book. 
it, it doesn't have a lot of science language in it, but do you know who created the laws of the universe? <laughs> Thank you. God. <laughs> God did. So he's accurate when he's talking about the science. See, there's times in the where the Bible is written where the overwhelming scientific fact, the belief of that day, someone would write something in the Bible that absolutely opposed that, and then they turned out to be right. I'll give you uh, some examples here. That one common belief was that the earth is flat. Just five or six hundred years ago, we discovered that it's round. The Bible knew that 2,600 years ago. In Isaiah 40, 22, it says God sits enthroned on the circle or the sphere of the earth. Another common belief, scientific fact, was that the earth has to be held up. The Greeks believed it was by Atlas. Egyptians believed it was by these uh, pillars. It all, and here we see in Job 26.7 that he spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. Another common belief was that the stars could be counted. All along, the Bible is sitting there saying, Jeremiah 33.22, while other scientists are trying to count the stars, coming up with numbers like 1,026. No, it's the 1,347 or something like that. And then scientists discover we cannot count the stars. There are too many to count. Jeremiah 33.22 says the stars of the sky cannot be counted. There's more examples than that, but that is why as, as science evolves, which you realize that science evolves, so like pull out the grade school science book you had and then pull out your kid's grade school science book. It's not the same book. <laughs> it's a new book. There's new science. So as science evolves, why do you not have to rewrite and reprint this book? Because it's scientifically accurate. There's nothing coming out in the news tomorrow that's going to make you have to uh, update the Bible. It's accurate. Look at this verse with me. Let every created thing give praise to the Lord. For he issued his command and they came into being. He set them in place forever and ever. His decree will never be revoked. That's scientifically accurate. Number three, number three, number three it's prophetically accurate. It's prophetically accurate. Okay, the Bible is predicated on a setup and a payoff. This whole premise of the Bible, it is predicated on a setup and a payoff. And if there's no payoff, it's not accurate. If just man wrote the Bible by themselves, it, they would have to work very hard to make sure these wild claims happen. It's in, the things they claim they couldn't make happen by themselves. There's over 1,000 prophecies in Scripture, over 300 for Jesus alone, that were all fulfilled to a T. How do the prophets know all that? Of everything that's been fulfilled, there's some prophecies yet to be fulfilled, but of everything that has been fulfilled, how did the prophets know that? Peter tells us that prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And it really, when it comes down to it, this is one of my favorite things, that it's prophetically accurate. And I've just discovered it takes more faith for me to believe that the prophecies of the Bible are coincidence than to believe that God planned them. Uh, one of the most asked questions about this, 
uh, just as I talked to people leading up to this message, uh, was what about uh, the prophecies and, and what about the works of Joseph Smith in, in the Book of Mormon? Well, he tried to do some miracles such as prophecy, uh, but failed several times. And, and I don't intend to go uh, through all those, but the true test of a prophet is found in Deuteronomy 18, 21 through 22, where it says that when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass, if the word does not come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken, and the prophet has spoken presumptuously. So this, this book, you don't need to add to or take away anything. It's prophetically accurate. It's accurate. It stands alone, and it stands apart. Let's go to the next one, number four. It's thematically unified. How do you get that amount of people over that long a period of time to have the exact same theme without contradiction? How does that happen? If it were only one person who wrote it, uh, that would make sense. The Koran, written by one person. The writings of Buddha, written by one person. You look around at the sacred texts of other religions. They're written by one person. Some of them have the contributing factors of several different people. But the Bible is written and thematically unified, written by people who never met each other, never even saw each other. Different continents, different walks of life, different socioeconomic status. But as you read the Bible, you get the symmetry of one powerful story, and that is how Jesus is creating and restoring all things. From people who never met each other, dealing with different issues under the influence of one God. Jesus knew this. He even sat down with his disciples. He took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's about Jesus. It's about God. Let's go to the next one, number five. I love this one. It has survived all attacks. The enemy wants to keep you far from the Bible. Voltaire, the famous French philosopher in the 1700s, He's absolutely brilliant. He's a brilliant atheist. And he once made a very bold statement that in 100 years, he'll no longer have the Bible. It is a miracle that this book is here today. It is the most despised, derided, denied, disputed, dissected, debated, outlawed, and destroyed book ever and it's still here people powerful people on the earth have made it their life mission to destroy the bible communists when they come into power you know what the first thing they do day one is outlaw destroy and burn bibles dictators rise up into power and they're threatened by the bible the bible threatens evil people and what do they do they set out to destroy it they're not threatened by homer's the iliad they're not threatened by the works of caesar but they're threatened by the bible and they will do everything they possibly can to destroy it powerful men have made it their life mission to destroy it. And look, it's still here. It's still living. And it's because the church stands and says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power to save. And they say, I believe it. And it's not going anywhere. Amen. Voltaire's house 
Uh, after he died for nearly 100 years, it was the homestead and used as the book depository for the French Bible Society. And they sold books out of his house. And it's now a museum. And guess what? People have forgotten Voltaire. They never forget the word of God. Read this with me. It says, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's look at the next one. It has transforming power, number six. Jesus says, if you hold to these teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The Bible will transform you. It's, it's life and light and it will set you free. Word on the street is this book wants to keep something from you. Word on the street is that this book wants to hold you back from something. It wants to suck the joy and the fun out of your life. Not true. It wants to set you free. To live in the freedom and the light and the life and the joy of Jesus' name. The Bible will make your life more meaningful, more significant. It'll make your life better and more fulfilled. Let's go to the next one. And, and if I lost you somewhere along the way, track with me now. Because if I only had just a few minutes to give you this message, this is, this is what I would have given you. And that is that it's trusted by Jesus. It's trusted by Jesus. Several verses I could have used here. But Matthew 5.18, Jesus says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now some people, some Christians even, will claim and say that the, the Bible, it contains the word of God, but it's not all the word of God. They say, we believe in the words of Jesus, the words in red, the words of Jesus, but everything else we're not sure about. They'll say, uh, the Apostle Paul was writing to the cultural backdrop of his day. His words aren't for us. Here's why you cannot say that. And that is because Jesus handpicked Paul. He called and commissioned Paul. Jesus handpicked Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James. He called and commissioned them to share the faith, to go into all the world, to teach the church the faith. Paul's words are for us. It's impossible to be a follower of Jesus without also being a follower of Paul. It's impossible to be a follower of Jesus and not be a follower of the writers of the New Testament. Jesus believed it all. God inspired it all. I cannot say I'm following Jesus if then I choose not to follow his word. This book, the Bible, is God-breathed. It's God-inspired. Every word, every I that's dotted, every T that's crossed, we can trust it. We can, it can save us. It can guide us. It can protect us. It can set us free. It's God-breathed. I've got one more thing in this storage tote, and it's another Bible, but this is my daily Bible, my daily driver, every day. And, and this series, the premise of this series is straight answers to honest questions, people who are wrestling with their faith. And I'll just tell you, I wrestle with mine. There's, there's things in here I don't understand. There's things in here that because I believe them, I look foolish to the rest of the world. 
There are things in here that because I will never renounce them, I may one day be persecuted for believing them. But in the middle of it all stands Jesus Christ who pulled me out of the pit of despair, who pulled me out of the muck and the mire, and he set my feet on a solid ground, a solid rock, and he steadied me as it walked along. And Jesus trusts this book. Jesus trusts these words, and I trust them as well. It is not outdated. It is the most relevant, eternal, important thing in my life. Would you bow your heads and Let's pray together. Let's just thank God for his word. God, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the life and light that come from it. Thank you for the durability of it, the strength that we get from your word. And thank you for its absolutely unique message that there is a creator and that he loved the world so much that he gave his life for it. And God, we believe it. We're praising you for eternal life. We're not ashamed of it. It's the truth that sets us free. And God, we believe in in who this book is ultimately all about. Jesus Christ who came and he lived a perfect life just as your word says. He was without sin. He was a perfect sacrifice on that cross. It was a death. It was a penalty for my sin. He died in my place and he rose from the dead proving that he has the power to forgive sins, proving that he is one with God and that he is my Savior. God, I believe in him. I worship him. I trust him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.